Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement. And I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller, back at you with my NPR-like voice with another behind-the-scenes summer session episode. We are deep into the summer. It is hot, and I've been to the beach two, three times now, which has been lovely, but I'm always ready to learn and continue learning. And the fact that I can do these interviews and learn during the summer and continue to use my mind just puts me at a little bit more peace during the summer. Uh, Much like in school, it's good to use your brain when you're not in school or just generally day to day. But enough about my summer. I mean, you look great. I love what you're doing with your hair. And I'm so happy to have you back because we are talking about line producing. Now, if you're like me, film obsessed, I get it. You hear the words or the term or the title, line producer. And I got to be honest, my mind went a little blank (laughs) in terms of I have no idea what a line producer actually does. And so I was lucky enough to have a fabulous conversation with horror lover and line producer Ryan Gibson, who loves film, loves working on film, a bit of a jack of all trades, uh, if I do say so. And he gave a wonderful insight into what it means to be in that position, in that world, and and all of those other great things, how he started. You know how the show goes. I don't need to explain it to you by now. So I will stop talking and let you enjoy part one of my interview with line producer Ryan Gibson. Enjoy! Scopophilia. It's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of the Summer Sessions. And I am here with friend of the show, Ryan Gibson, line producer, creative producer, unit production manager, so many titles to keep up with. And so, Ryan, first and foremost, how are you? How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. That the only that just means I'm not good at any of those jobs. So I just have to keep. <laughs> They just keep trying to find new places to put me where I might be effective, (laughs) but I'm funny. So they keep me around a bit. There you go. I'm good. I'm good. good. It's been a busy, uh, after, um, you know, everyone has their story about COVID. So Mm -hmm. after uh, having a, uh, 10 month layoff of not working, um, I, uh, effectively just kind of, it was like a reboot. I, I was finishing a film for the film arcade called God's country, which will probably be released. I think it might go to can this year. Ooh. I think, um, not that I'll be there. Um, <laughs> but 
so this is this is a product this is a good production story for everyone to realize how how committed and how hard it is sometimes to make a film but god's country uh um julian higgins is the director he's a, a young guy uh he's a a professor at AFI, I, I do believe. Um, he made a short that was recognized by the Academy and he got funding to make a feature film. He's a very lovely man. Um, and we went up to Montana to make a snow movie in <laughs> February of Oof. January. I think we went January, February of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, um, then a virus hit the earth right? <laughs> and we were two weeks from being done and we had to sit down the powers that be uh, the upper management sat down and said uh, all the other productions in America have shut down and we think that it's best for us to shut down too. And we were about, we were six days from being uh, seven days from being done. Oh Wow. And so I got in my car, like people ran back to lot, back to their homes. Um, uh, not they got in their cars and their, right. their planes, right. They didn't actually <laughs> physically run. That's dangerous at right. best, but literally everyone got in their vehicles within 24 hours and the entire production, which these things are even in independent films are massive efforts like Herculean efforts. And usually on a smaller film, it just means you have to wear more hats. Mm -hmm. People ran back and because it was, it was, I wasn't, I wasn't scared. It probably was because I, maybe because I grew up in a medical family and my dad's a doctor, he still practices and I talked to him about it. But the general consensus was that we were kind of, we were safe because we were on the frontier Mm. but we were also, but also we were, you know, except for the little sliver of Idaho, we were basically right next to where the infection entered the country in Seattle. So, um, so I, I got in my car and drove back to Los Angeles. And as I was leaving Montana, I said to myself, I'm not going to work for a year. I I could feel it. And it was, and it was an entire, it was an entire year. Uh, we, I ended up driving back to Montana uh, in March of this year to finish wow. filming. Yeah. So, uh, but since then, it's been nonstop. Yeah. And, pro- and, and production across the world um, and the United States has, the pendulum has completely swung the other way. It's exploded mm. that you can't, you have people who are bartenders in Atlanta. Like if you are interested, here's, here's something. If you want to work in film or production, mm-hmm. you want to be a part of it. And if, and if you don't, if you have to roll the dice to do this anyway, get in your car, wherever you are, pack your stuff <laughs> and drive to Atlanta and work on movies. That's uh, there. I cannot give you any better advice than that. Right now, you could have a job on a set by the time your feet land in Georgia. Like, wow. don't don't waste your time. Bartenders, servers, hostesses, lawyers, 
tax attorneys. Just <laughs> if you have any, like there, there are, there are people who are, uh, uh, bartenders who have some hope of being a production designer. They could get a job as a pr- assistant production designer in Atlanta right now. Wow. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> so this, so we're leaving the show right now. Thank you, everybody. We're <laughs> getting you. in our cars <laughs> and we're going to Atlanta. I'm packing my things right, right now. <laughs> All things packed. <laughs> well, I mean, that's so interesting because like I know I've done a couple interviews like mid-COVID and it was, well, we don't know when we're going back to work. We don't know what's happening, this and the other. And so now it's interesting to hear that it's on the other side of that which is hopeful in that it feels like things are getting back to normal, but I'm sure it's, it's pretty stressful. And so, I mean, in, in a world where you are now, it feels like really busy, especially after the past year. I mean, tell me, you know, what, what is it that you do? Cause I know you, you wear many hats, but like things like line producer or, you know, unit production manager, for people who don't understand like what those terms are. Sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) So let's, let's do unit production manager first. So a unit production manager is uh, someone, the way I see it is someone who works with the line producer and the producers on a whole, uh, not so much the producers on a whole, but has a relationship with them that, that manages the movement and timing of the entire unit of, of, of everything, all the trucks, all the people, how they go, where they go, how they land. And he does, he or she does that in coordination with, um, uh, a, uh, uh, the line producer who is in charge of the budget and they discuss how expensive things are. You also do, um, you know, whatever your, whoever your vendors are, because all of this is based on vendors for the camera, for the trucks, Mm. for the grip and electric, for the audio, for our production sound, uh, to right down to the PA, right down to second meal. Like the unit production manager has, uh, in conjunction with the line producer and the coordinator, uh, work as a team to kind of functionally make sure that that all of that happens on a daily basis. Now, um, in bigger uh, films, like for a studio film, you, there are a lot of people who help facilitate that. In independent film, it is there's there's a guy, <laughs> <laughs> that guy over there does that. Or that lady over there does that, and it, it's it's a pretty weighty job. It's mm. it's um, you know, um, but it's it's the dance of all the equipment of all of the uh, how we go from one set, one location to another, and you know, in pre production, it's assembling the the people that aren't picked like that maybe not necessarily the keys that come from either the dp or the director himself but it's it's that coordination of all of that and then also being fiscally responsible because that's really the main thing when you're making uh, anything Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be fiscally responsible to either your investors or the studio Uh, well whoever is making it um, you can't just dump money in a fire barrel and right. <laughs> and co- go back later and say, oh, I'm sorry, I spent $700 on second meal um, <laughs> on Taco Bell. Right. Um, 
they there's there are limits and means and you have to keep track of all of that and it's all and it's um you know it's a lot of paperwork frankly there's a lot of i mean it's a bit this is the way i this is what i equate uh at some level what filmmaking is and and this takes all the creative creativity out of it you set up a company that Uh makes one widget and that widget is the only thing you you're making. It's like, you're not making 6,000, you know, Ford Broncos a year. You're making one widget and it's an evergreen thing. It's always going to be there for them. And it hopefully will always make money for them. Um, but it's, it's, you set up a company, you make your widget, you birth it, you put it out in the world and you hope to God that, people like like what you made and <laughs> and buy it you know buy buy a viewing of it and mm-hmm. then and that's that's and then your company exists in the ether for for a hundred <laughs> years and that's pretty much it hmm. you we're a one widget show gotcha. yeah we make one widget it's called a movie <laughs> i think i've heard of those mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then so a unit Production manager yeah. works closely with a, a line producer, a line producer, or a coordinator, yeah, a coordinator, yes. and and and, uh, and the producers on the whole has uh-huh. some relationship, like works closely with the DP for equipment, um, you know, manages relationships. Um, I know that I am definitely a shoulder to cry on <laughs> or to complain to. I I field a lot of complaints um, when yeah. thing, when you're in like. You know, when you're past like the twelfth hour, when are we wrapping? <laughs> like, how much longer can this possibly go on? Right. <laughs> you know, you deal with the unions, um, not so much SAG, but you deal with IATSE and um, and Teamsters uh, mm-hmm. because trucks require drivers, and drivers are Teamsters, and mm-hmm. sometimes, a lot of the times, and it's it's a movement. It's a it's a it's a ballet, but it that does. Um, that doesn't do ballet any favors by saying that (laughs) it's a very aggressive, loud ballet, right? Punk ballet, maybe. Um, yeah. So that's a unit production manager. And then a line producer, uh, is approached my experience. This could be different. Um, a line producer is sought out by producers to, they're given a story. They read the scripts. They, analyze the script they put together an initial budget of what things are going to cost um in a certain you know line item by line item Mm -hmm. um and then they put that together and they work with the producers to find out you know can something be done for x amount of dollars and then you you start to engage um you know, sometimes they have the director by then. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's driven by the director because the director's a producer. Uh, mm. It just depends on what level you're playing at. I am not. A, I have not done a studio movie yet. I've worked for smaller studios, but I've not done a like a Paramount, Universal. I hope to someday. I, I would like to do that. Right. Um, but that's you know, that's in the future. I haven't done that yet. Um, but I think it's pretty much similar to that. I know that it's really the accountants and being fiscally responsible, mm. uh, the accountancy and being fiscally responsible is the most important thing when making any type of media. 
um, mm. getting the most for your money and also being responsible to your investors and keeping your investors or the company that's hiring you happy. Um, and that's a very delicate balance because you never want to tell an artist <laughs> how to make their art. Right. And film is very subjective. As we all know, we've all mm. looked at Rotten Tomatoes and seen, wow, <laughs> I liked Ice Pirates, but apparently Ice Pirates <laughs> is not universally liked. <laughs> Why is it? I gave it a nine and it's a 2.1. Something is wrong with me. So for all those, that was a plug for Ice Pirates, by the way. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the basics. It's, it's really the behind the scenes corporate structure, corporate in quotes, that makes a movie happen. Because every movie is, whether you want to believe it or not, every movie is a business. It's a right. one off business and it's bottom line driven because, you know, Disney goes out and spends a half a billion dollars on making, you know, the last two movies in the Marvel series. But then they have to spend another half billion dollars on worldwide advertising. So now you're in for a billion dollars. A billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Now, I went to go see those movies in the theater. (laughs) I liked liked them. But to recoup a billion dollars is a big gamble. That's a big gamble. Now, that's got a built-in audience, so they're lucky. But... You know, you take, for instance, a little movie like uh, Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day by, Mm -hmm. um, if we want to talk horror, and I'm a big, I'm getting ready to do a horror movie or a horror comedy movie. So I'm, I've been doing my research and I love, I'm a dark person and I like horror. I like scary stuff. It's a fun one. (laughs) It's a Happy Death Day is a fun movie. Now, there's nothing very, now this is by our friends over at Blumhouse who, have a very I've never worked for them so I cannot say but I would say he has an awesome he knew what he wanted to do I've never talked to Jason Blum I don't know him from from Adam <laughs> uh-huh. I know people who've worked for him uh, but I know that he came up with an idea of how to make fiscally responsible movies and I give him all the credit in the world because they make fun movies. Yeah. Uh, they are, they are prof. I would assume that a lot of them are profitable. And I think that, um, and then for my money, they give you bang for the buck. So happy death day somewhere in the range of probably three to $4 million shot in Louisiana. Not a lot for a movie, quite simply, very cheap, cheap. When you're talking about, a television show is going to cost more than that nowadays, a limited run series. Right. And, um, and I think that movie ended up doing somewhere around 40 million. Yeah, I think so. That's a good investment. 10 (laughs) times. That's if you talk about, I spent a dollar and made and made $10. That's, that's okay. But when you talk, talk about spending 4 million and making 40 million, that's really good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's a good business model. Jason Blum, call me. <laughs> Jason, we're waiting for your J- call. Three, three one zero. <laughs> um, so, so you have, so you have now, not every movie's, uh, you, you know, you swing for the fences. Not everyone's going to hit, but 
he they pretty much consistently know what they're doing. I don't know if it's good market research, uh, which I think a lot of today's, you know, it's not only about accountants. Look, there's this whole thing called pre-sale, and we could talk about this all day. It died. <laughs> it was a do you know what do you do you know what this is, this pre-sale thing? Uh I don't I mean I don't think so off the top of my head. So so there, there's these, there are charts where you can say, I'm going to take, um, uh, why am I blanking on this? Oh, Nicholas Cage. So Nick, so you get Nicholas Cage and yeah. Nicholas Cage costs X dollars, but we know from historical facts and figures that he's going to net X. So I can go to Europe and pre-sell the fact that this, without you seeing the movie, if I put Nicholas Cage in this movie, he he's going to earn me X amount of dollars. I can take Dolph Lundgren is one of those names, funny enough Mm. that I can. So there's these names that will pull money so I can sell the movie, the idea of the movie by pre-selling the fact of, uh, I can pre-sell on the fact that these stars are in it. And Mm. so that's a, that's a, I don't know how I got on that tangent. We might have to edit that out. (laughs) I lost my train of thought. It was really good, though, I promise. <laughs> um, no, I think it just comes... The, there was a way that you could finance movies, which was by pre-sale, by putting this... This kind of died before COVID, but after COVID, it's back. Yeah. So now you can pre-sell on these things. and Because um, otherwise, you either have to put the money in yourself or you have to find someone who's wealthy enough who wants to be in the movie business to put private equity. and mm. And it's... I don't have $4 million to put into a movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. Um, so, um, so that's why it's really in the end, no matter who's in the movie or who's working on the movie or what your concept is, it's really important that you stay fiscally responsible and mm-hmm. and that goes all the way down to the prop, the person who provides the props, the people who are involved, those the salaries of the people who get paid. You you really have to. It's it's a big numbers game, and you have to be responsible to that. Right. Well, and let, so then let me ask you. You know, you you seem to know a lot about kind of both aspects of the world of film and and TV and all those things. Where. Where did that all start? Like, did you just always know that you wanted to do film? Like, how did you find yourself in this in this kind of profession? Um, so I um, I worked. I, I I went to business school, mm-hmm. and I worked in. Uh, I worked for the National Basketball Association. Uh, lucky enough, not in a. I was in a uh, support role, mm-hmm. and I came out to L.A. And stood on the Santa Monica pier and was like, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I just, I fell in love with the city. I came out here uh, on a trip uh, with the team and was in awe of just being in LA and I love the ocean. And I was like, I'm, I'm moving to Los Angeles. Um, uh, just for transparency purposes, when I was in college, my mom died very young and I was, uh, I, at that point in my life, which I think I was 19, I just wanted to 
get out. Right. I just wanted to get, I was going to get through school, get my degree and, uh, and then leave because life, I saw life as being too short. Mm. So I came out to, uh, if we, we can pause for everyone to, to rub their eyes from the, all the tears that are falling. <laughs> so, so no, no mercy. Don't, don't give me any mercy. Um, so I, so I moved out to LA and I slept on the floor of a, of a house because I, I didn't have a lot and right. I wanted, and I ended up in a great house. And I was like, they were like, you can sleep in the living room on the floor. And I had never done that before. So that's what I did. And I did that for six months until someone moved out of the room. And then I moved in and a good, I worked as a waiter, which I had never done before. Um, and I, I had a business degree, which I don't know if I'm using to this day, but I know I have one. (laughs) No, I use it. Um, right as a mat. Um, <laughs> and so I, um, uh, I got really lucky that a friend of mine was working at a vault in a vault for, um, for a, and I hate to tell a story that's based on luck, but I think, I think everything requires a little, it's right place, right time. And also it's what you make of it. So I got a friend of mine said, Hey, they're looking for a production assistant at this editorial house, visual effects house, editorial house. And, um, uh, would you like to try to interview? And I said, yes, I would love that. And, uh, I went and, um, uh, I'll never forget this woman named Annie Z who I owe my life to, to this day. So she hears this, Annie, I love you. (laughs) She, uh, she interviewed me and she said, I don't think this is the right place for you. And I said, I grabbed her hands and I brought her very close to me. And I said, I need this. (laughs) I need this. And she said, you start tomorrow. <laughs> I, ba- I begged her. I, ba- I begged. And she and I started. And I worked for a very famous, who's a very famous Academy Award winning editor and, and his wife at the time. And they had a very, his name's Angus Wall. And I owe him and his um, sadly passed on wife, uh, Linda Carlson, um, my life as well. I, I wanted to name my son Angus because of him. Um, unfortunately oh, wow. that, unfortunately that was overturned. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, but Angus wall and Linda Carlson and everyone that was at rock, paper, scissors and a five, two who helped me as a very young man. Um, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I cleaned up dog poop and I got people lattes uh-huh. and I cleaned kitchens and I cleaned the kitchen and did everything that you have to do when you're a production assistant. And I did not complain one bit about it. I did drives with the Thomas guide and this was before phones and it was a real pain in the ass. <laughs> and I learned the I learned the production, the post-production side of the business from probably one of the best editors and one of the craftiest women in the business world 
then in that world then um and they were i got to work with angus tangentially uh, a bunch of times uh linda ran the business from from her position i didn't work with her too much but i saw like when you're around people who are you know angus got his start because he edited smells like teen spirit that might not have been the first thing, but that was one of the things that he, that broke him. And he worked right. with some, I got to work with some giant directors before their time, Spike Jones and just a lot of big folks would come through there. And, uh, I got just the stories that I have and, but basically being a PA and then uh, I got I got a break and I moved up there and I moved up to being a like an engine. I learned like the engineering part of um, production, which is tape transfers and how po- like that was when we were using you know um, we were still using pneumatics and stuff mm. that's not really used anymore, not right. too much. And uh, you know we'd still send out VHS tapes. This is I'm dating myself quite a bit. <laughs> and then. Um, <laughs> And, uh, um, and then I got a break because I helped design. Um, I started to work as a designer because I've always been kind of an artist. And I look from the beginning, I loved movies. I had a love for movies from the beginning. I ne- I wish I had known when I went to college that I wanted to work in the movie business or that I mm. wanted to make movies. I wish that I wouldn't have rushed to go right to school and, I wish I just took a breath to find out where I really wanted to be. And it just didn't happen that way. And I'm, I'm blessed. I hate, I hate that shit, but <laughs> I hate it, but I truly am. I truly am very lucky to be where I am today. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm surely on my way. Um, and then, you know, I turned that into working for free, you know, starting my own or helping started my own visual effects company and editorial company. And, and then I ended up going into show development to learn how shows are developed and how ideas are developed and how ideas are, ideas are written. Um, I wrote my own stuff. I put money into my own things that never worked out. Um, but I, sh- I, that didn't stop me from trying or continue to try to, to this day. Um, and then about five years ago, um, I had, I had pretty much reached what I thought was the pinnacle of what I could do in the visual effects art. The, the business is, the business is changing quite, the business had been changing quite a bit. Right. Um, and it was I didn't see I didn't see where there was left for me to go. Like mm-hmm. I could like I I didn't I didn't see like I'm I'm going to grow old and I'm just going to keep doing the same thing ad nauseum until the end. And mm-hmm. I had always I had always wanted to know more about the fronts. I had been on set as a visual effects supervisor and in other capacities, but I had, I didn't know. And I'd always dealt with producers and, and storytellers and writers and, and uh, other folks, but I didn't, 
I didn't have the experience of what it takes to actually put a production in motion. So about five in about 2016, I think 2016, 2017, I got involved with a friend of mine's film and he said, do you want to come produce it with me? Um, there were some caveats in there, but it was uh-huh. an opera. It was an opportunity for me to learn how an actual film was started from script and how it progressed into going into production. So I took advantage of that. A huge thank you to Ryan Gibson for coming on the show and talking about his fascinating career. And this is just part one. I mean, there's so much more that we talk about in part two, you know, movies, horror movies, loving what you do and, and you know, school and all this other stuff. It's great. But unfortunately, you'll have to wait for next week to listen to the episode. But don't worry. I've got you. We have a few options for you going forward from here. I know you want more content. I want more content. But there is a schedule for a reason, and I'm just a small bit of a rule follower in terms of this show. So what can you do in the meantime? Well, you can listen to any episodes that you haven't listened to already. We have season one. We have season two. We have all of the summer session episodes ready and waiting for your consumption of media. Additionally, you can always follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast or on our TikTok at scopophilia the podcast. We also have merch, which of course you can find the link in our bio. Otherwise, you can go to NC Podcasts slash Scopophilia and you will find our merch there. We have hats, we have totes, we have shirts, everything you need for running errands, going to the beach, any occasion really, any occasion. Just think about that. And since you're already on the internet looking at all of those fun things and listening to all of these amazing episodes, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show because it helps us out a lot, and I love hearing from you. All of your comments are so fun, and I love getting the feedback and hearing from you guys because I'm having just as much fun as you are. And since we're having fun, make sure that you are telling your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family about the show Because we just want to keep having the conversation with everyone, not just each other. I mean, we are great. We're solid. We are on another level, really. But we should also probably share all the fun that we're having together. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I'll see you all for part two next Friday. Bye.